Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears. I'm Dominic Frisbee and this is our first ever show under our new name. We were, of course, Commodity Watch Radio, hosted in association with Mindsight. But I've changed the name of the programme due to the fact that we talk about so much more than commodities. Many of you subscribe to the show via iTunes or some similar feed, so that every new show is automatically uploaded to your computer or iPod. And I'm hoping you will still get the show without having to resubscribe. But it may be that you do have to resubscribe, so... If you do, I apologise. If you haven't already subscribed, I recommend that you do, and thus you get shows automatically. There are various subscription options on the home page. Anyway, that's all the administrative stuff out of the way, I think. I hope you like the new show. I hope you like the new music. I think it's great. So let's crack on with our first ever Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Taxpayers Alliance was formed in 2004 by Matthew Elliott, Andrew Allum and Florence Heath to fight for lower taxes. One of its founders, Matthew Elliott, is sitting with me now, or I should say I'm sitting with him in his offices. He is the co-author of the highly entertaining book, The Bumper Book of Government Waste, uh, which basically is a series of accounts described in a very witty and amusing way, and also in rather a despairing way. And he has a new book out uh, now called Fleeced, which he has co-authored with Daniel Craig. It's subtitled How We've Been Betrayed by the Politicians, Bureaucrats and Bankers, and How Much They've Cost Us. Matthew, thanks very much for agreeing for agreeing to this interview. Why don't we start with the Taxpayers Alliance? Sure. Why don't you tell us a bit about it, uh, what it is, what it stands for, how it how it came about? Well, the Taxpayers Alliance has been going now for about um, five and a half years. And um, now there's a consensus that government spending needs to be cut, particularly since the fiscal crisis. And even Gordon Brown is now saying that spending cuts are necessary. I, I noticed, actually, I saw as I came into the office, Gordon Brown gets out axe was the... Uh, the headline on the Evening Standard. So, so Absolutely. It's amazing. I don't believe a word of it. <laughs> but five and a half years ago, there was a general consensus in politics that the, the high government spending and spending increasing was the way forward, and that this was good for public services. Um, some people even said good for the economy as well. Um, but we felt that money was being just pushed into the um, public services um, without any sort of reforms, and it was basically going to waste. And I think we've been proved right on this. So just like some people saw the uh, house price bubble bursting, I'd like to think that the Taxpayers Alliance and through the uh, work I've done, the writing I've done, 
we actually proved the fact that we actually saw the fact that the overspending was going to cost taxpayers a lot of money and lead to a lot of, a lot of waste. Let's look at the, the reaction to this crisis. It's been a very Keynesian reaction. People have wanted to spend their way out of it. Is that the right way out of this crisis in your view? Absolutely not, because I think people just adjust their behaviour. So people see the fact that this year the government's going to have a deficit of £175 billion. And they know that a big tax rise will be coming down the road and possibly after the next election. They realise the fact that essentially you're in the middle of a big political game where both the parties are in a standoff, knowing they've got to make big changes, but being unwilling to do so before the election next May. Is, is that not the problem with the system that we have, is that uh, economic decisions are made on the basis of what will win votes rather than what is actually good for the country? I think there's a lot of truth in that, because when we first started talking about the need for tax cuts all those five and a half years ago, and even until the last few years, what lots of the parties would say to us, well, we agree that taxes should be cut, but what about uh, our votes? How can we win an election if there are so many people now working in the public sector whose votes we need to win that election? Now I think the politics has changed. When I talk to MPs, they're now getting um, letters from small businessmen in their, uh, in their constituencies, perhaps uh, couples who uh, own uh, a shop or something, mm-hmm. a shop that may bring in a family income for the two of them of you know, forty to £50,000 a year, not a great deal of money. And they're now saying, well, it's completely unfair. We're opening our shop all hours to, give, to uh, make our business survive. And yet we turn around, we've got a next-door neighbour in the public sector who's seen huge pay increases, who has a final salary of pension, who's able to take a lot of time off each year on holiday, and who, who has great job security. And that, that imbalance between the public and private sector, um, I think, is, is causing a lot of concern to people. But with so many more people working for the private sector or uh, being contracted by the public sector in some way or other, it's, it's, it's a golden goose. People aren't going to want that golden goose to stop laying, are they? Well, I think people have to realise if we continue spending at these levels, um, first of all, the deficit will grow even more. And then, of course, um, you know, Britain's credit status, UK PLC's credit status will be downgraded, which isn't good for um, you know, our fiscal situation or our finance situation or the situation of pensioners across the country. So that's the real thing we've got to face up to. But also the fact that um, a lot of the jobs in the uh, public sector aren't what I would call um, real productive jobs. Of course, you have the nurses, doctors, teachers, policemen, who, of course, we all want to see. And I would actually personally ring fence uh, all of those jobs. I think they're completely necessary. But then you have the rise of the non-jobs in the public sector that we've um, demonstrated uh, at the TPA. We have a non-job of the week, which we expose. Um, what some is your councils, non-job of this week? I'm not sure about this week, or but um, last week, a recent week, um, there's a, a council who's empl- employing a street football coordinator. So, <laughs> you know, whereas, whereas you know, 10 years ago, you know, kids will play football in the street yeah. you know, and put a couple of jumpers down in the street for goalposts and yeah. be perfectly fine. Now we need a, a street football coordinator <laughs> to actually coordinate all of that. Now, this is very funny, but what's the... Um, as a result of that, that job is paid for through taxpayers' money. 
and that taxpayer's money comes from individuals. It comes from small businesses who could possibly have employed another member of staff in, a, in what I would call a real productive job. So there's that uh, unintended consequence of this large state we're now in, which we should always remember. What is, is there a total figure that the UK government now owes? Mm. Well, it's now getting into the, um, it's always going to reach a trillion, I think, very, very soon. So it's an awful lot of money. We believe in, um, in fleece. Is, are... there, is there a realistic chance that that money is ever going to be paid back? Well, the government is banking on um, a very, very speedy economic recovery. And of course, we all know that the government's forecasts of growth yeah. are always by far higher than the forecasts of banks but, okay, or let's assume we, we have your L-shaped recovery. In other words, we don't recover, we just muddle along now. Uh, or we have something similar to what Japan had, you know, uh, tw- 20 years of sure. gradually falling prices. Um, what is the chart? I mean, th- that debt has basically grown and grown and grown and grown and grown since, the World War, since World War II. Absolutely. And, and sometimes it's kind of pulled back a little bit as somebody's reined in spending. Uh, Margaret Thatcher was very lucky in that she, the uh, North Sea oil all came on, mm. on, on tap during her reign, if you like. And so the, the revenue from the oil paid down a lot of her debt. And yeah. also so did her spending cuts. But really, the debt is ever-growing. So surely a much more likely outcome than that debt being paid back is some kind of default in a devaluation of sterling or the size of the debt in the uk is quite interesting because it's now higher than it was even after world war ii and of course we went into debt to you know fight a necessary world war so it is huge now what's interesting about the spending under margaret thatcher people forget that the cut in spending actually came in the previous government. It came under the Labour Party with uh, Jim Callaghan actually cutting spending when he went to the IMF. And now we're actually reaching a level in the UK where uh, it's similar to uh, the late 1970s, if you look at our debt. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are reaching a stage where I think the Labour Party should copy what Jim Callaghan did and actually recognise that you do have to cut back on spending, and that's the only way out. Uh, during the um, recession, we've you know, families have tightened their belts. We've sort of seen how perhaps people, more people have gone on holiday in the UK this year mm-hmm. rather than going overseas. Uh, businesses have tightened their belts, and lots, lots of them have gone through cost-cutting exercises. It's only the government who haven't tightened their belts. And just this week, uh, new figures came out which suggested that I think it was either thirteen or 15,000 extra public sector jobs have been um, you know, made by the government in the past quarter alone. So whereas in the private sector, of course, unemployment's happening as people cut down costs mm. in the public sector, they're taking up that slack. But who will bear the brunt of this? It'll be uh, the next generation, uh, perhaps even sort of our, our grandchildren will bear the brunt of it. So this is just completely unfair. It's a tax on future generations. Uh, absolutely. Um, but what I'm saying is, I, d- I just don't see them changing. It's, it's, it's a, there's a clear trend that's been in place of, of, of growth of debt. And effectively, I, I know the Bank of England is independent, but effectively the government has the power to print money. Yes. And I see uh, printing of money in some, you know, you can call it quantitative easing, if you like. Mm. While they have that power, I see no realistic chance of that debt being paid back. I see them printing the money to pay off the debt. Well, I think we saw this after the war where lots of governments um, printed money hoping to reduce debt. And I think the government will be thinking that along the same lines that if they just continue printing money, they'll reduce the debt. Um, everything will keep on rolling along quite nicely. 
But of course, we just know that um, causes huge swings in the economy. So, okay, in the short term, perhaps it alleviates things slightly and people feel the comfort of um, a stock slumping into a recession. But in the medium term, in the long term, it's just not the right recipe. We need to live within our means. Uh, absolutely. Um, Mr. McCorber's famous uh, uh, ratio. Now, mm. would, would, would you like to see some kind of reform of the monetary system whereby... Um, governments don't have that power to print money do you think that would impose some kind of discipline on them because they're basically it's a, it's a result of indiscipline this this out of control spending that they that they indulge in well i think that's something we do actually need to look into because um of course when uh, the Labour Party came in, their first act was to make the uh, Bank of England uh, so-called independent. Actually, been moving that way already, and it wasn't actually made that independent, in my view. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, people thought that was a great thing. So for ten years, there was then a political consensus that this was absolutely the right thing to have happened. Um, I'm not uh, a monetary economist. Um, I'm not even really an economist. I'm a, just a, a taxpayer who's uh, I've done I've got a degree in politics and followed these things. So okay. high level economics isn't really my thing. But uh, we do really need to le- learn the lessons of the financial crisis. And to be frank with you, I don't really trust the politicians on these matters because if you look at politics, too often they're sh- they're chasing the short term. They're not actually looking for the longer-term good of the country. So they find it far easier to suspend at high levels um, for the short-term sort of kicking the economy rather than actually sort of looking for what's good for Britain over the next um, sort of decade. I'll tell you what the answer is, and you'll think I'm some kind of crackpot, but the answer to deficit spending is get rid of fractional reserve banking and go back to some kind of gold standard, and it's only under that discipline that uh, government spending gets gets reined in. Otherwise, it, they will find ways around it. Well, it's interesting you say that because what I've seen the past year is more and more uh, emails pinging into my inbox from supporters who actually talk about this and members of the public who talk about it. So uh, whereas a few years back it was seen as being a completely wacky idea, I think it is actually getting gaining some traction because I think what one of the I pick up from the TPA supporters, taxpayers like supporters, is that they want a sense of discipline in banking and they don't trust the bankers um, one of the reasons why I cover banking a little bit in Fleeced is because whereas two years ago um, as sort of somebody who's naturally quite sort of free market um, I was sort of defending the city to the hilt um, but I actually found that when I looked more and more into the way in which the banks were operating perhaps they weren't actually being looking after their uh, customers and the longer-term good of the country as much as they should have been. So it's interesting that more and more people are talking about gold standard banking, having that security and discipline in there. That's very interesting that you say that, and I, I must say I'm delighted to hear it. People talk about the banking crisis being in part as a result of the free market being allowed to, to go about unchecked. But I would argue with them that this is not a free market until we have a free money. And the monetary system under which we operate at the moment is not free. It's uh, set by the government. It's, it's, it is the law that you make and accept payment in government-issued currency. It's not backed by anything. It's just a, a law. Uh, and if it was a genuine free market, it wouldn't be government-issued currency that would be used as money. It would be something else. There you go. Interesting. Um, now, so uh, that's just me going on my high horse there. Let's, let's talk about... Uh, Fleeced. Outline the book to us. Tell us what it's about. The main point of Fleece is to look at basically how much the whole fiscal and financial crisis has cost um, people in the UK. And the basic thesis of the book 
is that we lost uh, 1.5 trillion in the boom years, and then we lost another 1.5 trillion. Now we've gone uh, bust. Let me just explain the first 1.5 trillion yeah. first during the boom years. As we all know, when the Labour Party came in, they initially adopted the Conservative Party spending plan, so very, very conservative spending plans up until 1999. And then they basically massively let the break off government spending. And if you look at the increase in government spending after that, that's worth about uh, $1.35 um, uh, in real terms. And when you throw in as well, if, as, well as that the um, uh, $200 billion on PFI projects, then that's $1.5 of basically extra spending, which I would argue the country couldn't afford. So just as I'm afraid lots of families as well, yeah, myself included, we sort of all had credit cards and what have you during the good years and um, perhaps sort of lived the high life, knowing our house prices were going up. So we lived a good life too. The government similarly did that and basically massively increased spending to unaffordable levels. So that's, that's $1.5 in the boom years. And $1.5 in the bust... That's, that's basically accounted for by the um, up to $200 billion which we're set to lose in the banks, according to the IMF. Um, the huge um, public sector pension liability, the, the amount that's increased over the past um, 15 years. Um, uh, the huge deficit we've now got because the government's overspending. So we, we basically estimate that about £3 trillion of our wealth has basically gone down the drain as a, uh, because of Gordon Brown and his actions. So it's a, it's a mind-boggling figure. Have you seen, there's an image somewhere on the internet of how much a trillion dollars, not a trillion pounds, but I think it's as high as a building or something if you were to stack it up in five-pound notes. Well, we did that calculation for our book as well. Oh, okay. And um, basically, if you had a, a wall of ten-pound notes, basically you could cover the, one of the facades of the House of Commons, House of Parliament, so you could actually block it out with ten-pound notes. So big as uh, £3 trillion. Pounds. Wonderful, wonderful. So wh what do you think of Boris? Interesting question. Um, I was very pleased when um, Boris Johnson came in because he uh, talked about actually look cracking down on wasteful spending, wasteful spending in London. And one of his first actions was to bring in uh, Patience Wheatcroft to actually do a waste commission for London to find out where wasteful spending had happened. And that came up with some interesting things. I think they abolished the uh, the mayoral newspaper that used to be delivered free to households. I think it was every month or every two mm -hmm. months. And they cut back on a few of the um, press offices in City Hall. Um, but it didn't really go beyond that. Um, so I've been concerned for a little while that perhaps Boris Johnson hasn't been finding the economies in uh, spending that perhaps he could have done. But then I was very pleased this week to see him actually confronting the Olympic Delivery Authority and actually insisting that they find areas to cut costs. So now there's talk that uh, rather than building new uh, stadia for the sort of, sort of the smaller sporting events of the Olympics, he wants them to be housed in an existing stadia across the country. So that's a, a good move in the right direction. So I hope his instincts are still there, but it does raise a slight concern for me that um, much as the Conservative Party are now talking about spending cuts um, ahead of the election, uh, and they're talking about cutting ministerial salaries by, I think, 20 or 25%, by quite substantial sums, I just hope that this isn't PR. I hope that when they actually get in nationally, assuming they do, actually they commit themselves to real spending cuts. 
Won't they have too many liabilities because of the liabilities left to them by the previous government? Well, it'll be fascinating to see uh, the real books because, of course, there's um, a, a dearth of uh, good financial data out there about how governments actually spend their money. That's why the uh, the leak this week to George Osborne's office of the amount of which uh, Gordon Brown was going to cut spending by was so crucial. But that's the first time we saw that sort of data in the public domain. Why, why is that data not in the public domain? It absolutely should be. One of the things we're campaigning for at the Taxpayers' Alliance is for uh, more financial data to be made publicly available. One of the great things that uh, President Obama did when he was a senator in the United States was to bring in something called Google Your Money in the US. And basically what this meant was there's now um, a federal website where all the federal grants over $25,000 are now listed online. And thankfully, the Conservative Party over here have now adopted that. So they're going to have a similar website, so we can actually see where money's been spent. And more crucially than that, there's something called the Coins database that the Treasury uses, which is basically their piece of accounting software with all the transactions on. The Conservatives are committed to making that publicly available as well. So we can have a situation here where taxpayer groups like ourselves, journalists, members of the public, pressure groups, political parties... We'll all be able to see how the government spend our money. And I think this will have as big an effect in the UK as the introduction of the Freedom of Information Act did under Tony Blair. So this would really transform our fiscal situation because immediately there'd be so much pressure to spend money well and give us value mm-hmm. for money that actually I hope it would actually be a pressure to reduce government spending in a sort of sensible way. Do you ever follow... Um an American congressman called Ron Paul. Is he someone you've heard of? Very much so, yes. I heard him speak um, about two years back in D.C. when he was putting together his uh, presidential bid. Did you like him? Did you like what he had to say? Absolutely. I thought he had a a very refreshing message. Um, It's the sort of message I'd like to hear more of in the United Kingdom. Um, so I think that the sort of... There's no one like blend, him here, is there? There isn't, no, not Vaguely really. Vince Cable, but that's about it. Yeah, Vince Cable, perhaps, as um, a Conservative politician called Douglas Carswell, who's fairly libertarian. But I think the blend of um, um, economic li- liberalism with social liberalism together is actually a very potent force. If you look at some of the polling that we've done at Taxpayers Alliance, and done by other people as well, digging down into people's general political attitudes you'll find there's actually a substantial number of people who, um, first of all, are, are economically and socially liberal, but also have the um, sort of slight anti-politician bent, which we certainly have at the Taxpayers' Alliance. I think that suspicion of politicians has been one of the great character traits in the UK, which actually we exported to the US. And we need to be suspicious of big government because you know, it doesn't always have our best interests at heart. I think a lot of politicians go into politics thinking, right, I'm going to do my best for the country. Mm-hmm. But then they get pushed around once they're in, in there by different vested interests. And what they actually end up doing is taking away our um, economic liberty, taking away our money through higher taxes, and often acting in quite a sort of big brother way, as we've seen in the past 10 years. What about Daniel Hannan? What do you think of him? What a character. Um, I've known him for about 10 years now when he was involved in, ever since he's been involved in Eurosceptic politics, which I sort of follow quite closely. Um, that's why I wrote a book about it earlier this year called The um, Great European Ripoff. I think Dan Hannan's a great guy. Um, I'd love to see him in the House of Commons, actually. So I'm hoping he'll be applying for seats for next year. So we need somebody who's willing to speak their mind. And the way in which he took on Gordon Brown when he spoke in the European Parliament 
that sort of full frontal attack for mm. three minutes, non-stop, very eloquent, without notes, was an inspiration. It was absolutely brilliant. And what was so amazing about that, that attack was not so much the attack, but the popularity of the attack on YouTube afterwards. Mm. I mean, millions of hits it had. Absolutely. And I think the, if you look at the internet in general, we find that the people who tend to be quite political on the internet do tend to be quite libertarian. If you look at websites like um, Guido Fawkes, which yeah. is a fantastic, you know, very Absolutely. popular website, um, he is basically a libertarian in his point of view and has that anti-politician bent I talked about before. So there is that feeling out there amongst the internet users that... Um, yeah, we do need a more libertarian alternative. The, the, the uh, internet is a force for freedom because it can't be regulated. Absolutely. Um, some people may have heard about the big march in uh, D.C. last week, in Washington, D.C., where um, they got about a million taxpayers from across the country to take part in the biggest ever Tea Party in D.C. And that was all done by a group that we work closely with called Freedom Works. And they basically coordinated all of that using their five webmasters. So the five webmasters basically uh, trawled through Twitter to build up. Uh, you find out all the people on Twitter who are libertarians. Mm-hmm. They went through Facebook. Uh, they went through all these other sort of social media. And they actually found they could get a million people on the streets of D.C. purely using the Internet. Whereas before, that sort of thing would have taken a long time to arrange. It would have meant direct mails, you know, letters to yeah. people, telephoning people. A very, very costly exercise yeah. with the Internet. This sort of social action you is can now... You find your market very quickly. Absolutely. You? Um, a more libertarian approach in politics. I think politicians would be surprised how popular it would be uh, with, with the electorate. And I think one of the problems that the Conservative Party have at the moment is they're a little bit behind the curve in that it's their instinct to rein in spending and have less government and so on. But only gradually are they making noises in, in that direction. And you need characters like Daniel Hannan who, who, who speak their mind and say, no, this is what we're going to do. And I think the Tories are still... Of this, of the kind of spin era where you never, you never say anything about anything. It's all fudging, and you know Tony Blair's third way, and so on. It's it's neither one thing nor the other. Would you like to see them kind of showing a bit more leadership? Absolutely. I think when um, Tony Blair was running for office in uh, ninety five, ninety seven. Uh, the idea that he pushed out lines to take to all his MPs and candidates every day with the specific line, the specific soundbite they had to say. That worked very well because it was new and people hadn't actually sort of come across it before. So for a short-term political exercise, it was very effective. But people now see through that and people see how there was a fundamental dishonesty there that actually within the Labour Party there were differences of opinion and they don't like the fact that basically they're covered up by these lines to take. And I'm afraid a similar thing's actually happened in the Conservative Party and they have become, I think, overly disciplined in how they uh, react to candidates and MPs. I think people want to see beyond that. They, they realise that within political parties, there is a range of opinions. So, yeah, within the Conservative Party, you do have people who are more libertarian, those who are more authoritarian, those people who are pro-European, those people who are Eurosceptic. And if, those, um, if there isn't an internal party debate on these matters, people see it as being too tightly managed, and they want to have a bit more honesty in politics. But they realise that the only way to have good policy is to have those debates. <coughs> Excuse me. There was a period about, I don't know, five or six years ago when I used to say that the, the two politicians with the most in common are Ken Livingstone 
and Ken Clark. And even though, in terms of political fo- philosophy, they couldn't be more opposite, the thing they had in common was they, they were the only two politicians who seemed to express any genuine opinion about anything. People like that in politicians. Uh, they do. You may not agree, but at least you get some substance there. Absolutely. Um, people always say about Margaret Thatcher that um, you know the number of people who voted for her, because though they perhaps disagreed with some of the things she said, they knew that she was a lady of principle who had a vision for the UK, and they were willing to go along with that. So people want a bit of leadership. Absolutely. And I genuinely believe Cameron has it within him to show that leadership. I just think he's... he's I don't think he realises the... The, the the huge wave that he's surfing. I mean, you know that there is a definite cycle in politics and we swing to the left for 10 or 15 years and then it swings mm. to the right. And, and he is surfing the wave of a big swing to the right and Gordon Brown is so unpopular and it's a real, it's a bit like Obama. It was a genuine chance, opportunity, and like Tony Blair in 1997, it was a genuine chance to make real change and let's hope he, he takes it rather than fudges it. Absolutely. And uh, what he's got to realise as well, I think, is the fact that his first hundred days are so crucial. If we cast our minds back to um, uh, 1997, when Tony Blair was elected, in his first hundred days, he could have brought in things like the euro had he wanted to. Yeah. You know, despite the fact that people are hugely eurosceptic, he could have brought that in because people, there's a certain amount of trust in that first hundred days. So this is why it's so important that the Conservative Party actually thinks through its plans now and also starts preparing people for the type of things it wants to do in that crucial first period. There's no point in just sort of landing them with a whole list of huge spending cuts, if that's what they're going to do in their emergency budget after the election, without first telling them over the next six months that these cuts are actually needed and explaining why they're needed and also explaining the general philosophy about why a low-tax, low-spending economy is actually good for job creation. I mean, it would take a miracle for Cameron to lose this election. So why not take the opportunity? You might lose, you might lose five percent of your votes, but make the changes. You might, I, you might find your votes actually increase. I think it would be better for David Cameron to get in with um, a majority of fifty, having explained to the country what he was going to do, than get in with a majority of a hundred, having basically not explained his manifesto ahead of time, because people don't want to feel duped. They want to feel they know what they're voting for and they want to feel that a government is delivering on the mandate that the public gave it at the election. But he might find that if he says what he's going to do, he gets in with a majority of 150, well, which he would could be the do. best of all worlds. <laughs> there's, a, there's a sort of story going around at the moment that um, the shadow treasury team are now saying to people, well, if we're not the most unpopular government within the first six months, we won't be solving the financial crisis properly. Well, I actually think that, yes, you will be unpopular amongst perhaps some people working in the public sector, some people working in Whitehall in the sort of, uh, with their six-figure salaries, the fat cats in Whitehall. Yes, you'll be unpopular there, but I think amongst the wider country, the people who now feel overtaxed, the people who have tightened their belts during the recession but haven't seen the public sector tighten their belts, you'll be immensely popular. So they need to be a lot more positive about their approach. Let's talk about this chap in Doncaster, the English Democrat Party. I, in the um, local elections, it was about, I guess it was about three or four months ago now, I went down to my local booth in Wandsworth and I looked at all the names of the various parties. I decided before I went I was, wasn't going to vote Labour and I wasn't going to vote Tory. And then um, I decided I wasn't going to vote Green either. I'm not, I often vote for the Green Party. And I looked at the names and um, there was a lot of 
uh, one issue parties going on and then there was a lot of you know we don't want to be in Europe we want to be in Europe and these various issues and they were all um, whether it was Tory, Labour, Green or, or Europe they were all taking some stance that involved the expansion of government mm-hmm. and the only one it's, it was the, the it was the English it was yeah the English Democrat Party isn't yes. it? The, the English Democrat Party I thought well I'm English and I went, yeah, that sounds right. So I voted for them. And then, lo and behold, I voted for this, this chap in, indirectly for this chap in Doncaster. So, and you went up to meet him last week. So tell us a bit about him, what he's done, and, and what you think of him. Well, it's incredible, the background to how he got in in Doncaster, because Doncaster's been um, you know, a very heavy uh, labour area for a long time, but there are a few scandals around the council. Uh, that meant that actually they were ready for a change. And I, I think the mayoral election there... Um, was incredible because I should say I for told, any American sorry for any American listeners Doncaster's in the kind of heartland of the English left wing industrial north and essentially a right wing guy has won there absolutely and Peter was telling me about how um, a manifesto basically went out um, to all the electorate and how because his name is Peter Davies it actually meant that he was towards the beginning of the book. So when people were flicking through the booklet of all these manifestos, they saw his. And he had a very clear message that he was going to basically get rid of the corruption that had crept into Doncaster Council. He was going to clean things up and he was going to give people some of their their money back. And that was a hugely popular message. So it just goes back to uh, what we were saying before, how this libertarian message can actually be hugely popular. And he's transforming things up there. He's going through the accounts. Has he banned the word diversity, is that right? He has banned the word diversity. (laughs) He's abolished a lot of the non-jobs. I think he's kicked out his um, spin doctor. He's taken a huge pay cut, I think, the previous... um, But you can't just sack these people because there's all sorts of uh, redundancy liabilities, is that right? Well, I think with some of them, he's possibly sort of offered them a different job within the council. It was so untasteful, they sort of didn't want to take it. So, oh, so he's found ways all... around it, yes. Okay. So he's been quite clever in how he's approached things. But he's got such a force of personality that I think he's really going to change things there. But he is coming under um, a lot of opposition. Some of the unions now in the council are, of course, sort of trying to rise up against him and make his life difficult. But I think if he stays principled, if he stays honest, if he stays with the sort of drive that made him take that pay cut and actually do things for the right reason for public service, the public will certainly side and he could actually transform things. And I know for a fact that a lot of people in the Conservative Party, even though it's a different political party, are actually very interested in what's going on there. They're using it almost like a case to mm. what could be done. And they, they should. Well... Um, let's just uh, let's sell your book fleeced a bit. Um, uh, why should well go on? You tell us why why should we buy fleeced? I'm hoping that fleeced is the best analysis of the situation we're now in at the moment. There have been some fantastic books, you know, much better than I could write on the um, financial crisis. Other books have been written about the uh, political crisis around the surrounding MPs and MPs' expenses that we've had in the UK. Uh, books have been written on the fiscal crisis as well, but I think this is the only book that actually brings together those three themes into one to actually explain where precisely we are at now in Britain. And I think we're in a pretty deep hole. We've got this um, you know, three trillion pounds that's now down the drain. We've got a political class that now, that's now not trusted by the people because they've such a, so abused our money over the expense claims. And also, 
it goes wider than that within the political class. It's not just the expenses. It's the fact they've given away so much money to the European Union as well. It's the fact they've given so much money away, so much power away to uh, Number 10 Downing Street that almost people see MPs now as being almost more like social workers or councillors in their area rather than legislators. They should be there to actually vote on the, the big issues of the day and to pass um, you know, good legislation. And now they seem more interested in sort of writing letters locally and doing pavement politics and actually dealing with the big issues. So I'm hoping that bringing together the financial, the fiscal and the political crisis into one book will give the population of the UK a you know, good idea of where we now stand and actually start framing the debate ahead of the election. Have you sent David Cameron a copy? Or George I have Osborne? done. And um, I actually gave um, a copy personally to one of them. I won't say which one uh, the other day. So I'm hoping they will read it and perhaps use some of the material in their speeches. I, I met uh, one of the kind of junior Tory ministers called uh, Mark Hoban. Oh, interviewed yes. him on this programme. Very nice man. And I was trying to persuade him to read the bumper book of Government Waste. Oh, yes. And he was saying, I don't need to. I see it every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. Lots of um, people in the shadow cabinet yeah. um, say to me how, oh, Elliot, um, I've got another letter from a constituent about you. And uh, all of the constituents now writing into, or party members as well, yeah. grassroots members are writing into shadow cabinet members and conservative MPs saying, you know, have you read the bumper Government Waste? Have you read the great EU rip-off? Have you read Fleece, yeah. I hope, will happen very soon? So They're, they're very good titles, by the way, that you give them. <laughs> so, well, that's good. So what, so what you're doing is having an effect. Do you ever write about what Alan Greenspan called the inflation tax? Does that mean anything to you? I haven't written about that, um, so explain more. Well, a lot of people describe in, uh, define inflation as rising prices and deflation as falling prices, but the traditional uh, definition of, an inf of inflation is that it is uh, the inflation, i.e. the growing of the um, supply of money and credit, leading to higher prices, so the higher prices are a symptom. And similarly, deflation is the contraction of money and credit leading to lower prices. And... If you have £100, if you've earned your £100 in savings and the government then issue credit or um, issue more money to the account of £100, there's now £200 in circulation rather than that original £100 that you earned. And so £200 chasing the same amount of goods, the purchasing power of your £100 has fallen. By half. Yeah, by the amount of money mm. that's printed. And thus... You, the the value of your money has been eroded, mm. and that is what is known as the inflation tax. And the government issue that money in order to pay for whatever deficit they've run up in whatever particular area. That you know they find ways to to issue it through the banks and so on, and through the issuance of credit. So yes, so that is another great rip-off tax uh, of the modern monetary system. I can see how that is. I mean, we'll remember talking about um, the moral hazard about bailing out the banks. But of course, there's a moral hazard and a more sort of uh, family level as well. That I feel it's really unfair that you know a lot of the people who saved over the past um, ten years, you know, during the good years, who yeah. didn't go hugely into sort of credit card haven't debt, been rewarded, haven't been rewarded, and now facing you know, zero interest rates, not making a return on their money, have seen the uh, stock market collapse. So perhaps their pension has been pushed down as well. Mm. And we're moving to a situation always in the UK where. Um, uh, I really hate to say this, but um, it's always better to sort of start spending all your money throughout your working life. And then when you get to retirement, 
um, it's always, but you know, and perhaps you need to go into a, a nursing home or you know, people's mm. homes being like that. It's better government. to be in the situation where the government's paying for it rather than having any savings of your own because what you just find is they just get eroded very, very quickly. So there's that is a the huge moral hazard there. That is the inflation tax. Mm. Um, have you seen, there's a chart which I've taken off the, um, uh, the Bank of England website of, that shows the purchasing power of the pound since 1700. And basically, it's been all the time that the pound was on the gold standard, it was fairly consistent. And then as soon as we came off the gold standard in 1914, it, it just plummets, basically. And then there was a brief rally when we went back on the gold standard in the 20s. And then it's just an, an ever, never-ending decline. The, the, it, it doesn't pay to hold cash. And in, in, in my opinion, you need a, a form of money that, that, that keeps its value. Mm. It's interesting, there's a new think tank set up recently, which I'm not involved with, but I've seen some publications from it, called the, um, the Cobden Centre. Okay. And I know they're looking into all this area, so it's probably a website worth looking up. The Cobden Centre, well, I'll look at it. Now, do you have, um, uh, the, the Taxpayers Alliance needs new members, that the website is? We do, absolutely. We have um, 32,000 supporters at the moment, and people can sign up via our website. Um, it's uh, www taxpayersalliance.com quite a simple link taxpayersalliance.com so sign up and join I, I'm, a, I'm a member do you need to do you need uh, uh, donators as well do you, do you survive off donations or how, we how do, do. You... we survive off donations from our supporters and we uh, regularly in our email bulletin ask for um, you know, money from supporters we send out direct mail as well and hopefully people feel that we're doing a good service on their behalf campaigning here i must say we actually keep costs low here as well i was going to so. say you're not you haven't these are very uh, what's the word not um they're not uh, this isn't dot com uh, offices that you're seeing here it's uh, very sensible and uh, restrained so so the um Yes, so, well, g- good stuff. Uh, that's the website. And is there a website for Fleeced, or do we just go to the Taxpayers Alliance? Go to the Taxpayers Alliance or search for it on uh, Amazon. Okay, and it's published by Constable. Constable. Matthew, tell us the three, in your opinion, biggest government wastes of all, in no particular order. <laughs> oh, that's a really tough question. Um, of course, the dome has to be in there, all the money going on the Millennium Dome. But what's interesting now is how um, popular and attractive the O2 Centre is now. It's actually run by the private sector. So it just goes to show that you can have these big attractions. And if they're run by the private sector, they're much more commercially viable and popular by people. Although they're struggling because of Michael Jackson's cancelled concerts. I, I think they're in a bit of trouble now. Okay, but nevertheless, I take your point. One of my members of staff said how good the uh, I think there's a Ben Hur show going on, going oh. on at the moment, so that's very popular. Um, another big waste of money. Um, there've been so many MPs' expenses has to be up there. It's one of the great wastes of the past um, ten years, and the fact that MPs from all parties were clearly milking the system. This was one of the great um, journalistic exposés. Uh, to have gone on and frankly if MPs can't look after our money uh, when they spend it in their offices how can we expect them to look after it when they spend it in government departments and locally as well so that was my second one and is it because it's one, easier to spend other people's money than it is your own I think it is I think Milton Friedman talked about this I can't remember the name of his theory he talked about how people are very careful when they spend their own money on themselves then they're also sort of slightly less careful when it's their own money on other people and it goes through this different thing and when you pay other people's money i.e. taxpayers money spending it on other people 
you know, a, a government department, that's when you're least careful with money. Okay. So that's quite an interesting theory. And then my third one has to be one of the things we exposed in the first uh, bumper book government waste, which was the um, RAF pilot who retrained as a stripper at taxpayers' expense. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my favourite waste of all time. What about, I'll tell you the biggest waste of all, what about the Iraq war? Interesting one. We don't tend to go into uh, foreign policy at the Taxpayers Alliance. Um, I have my own views about the Iraq war and uh, Afghanistan and things like that. Um, but they're not formulated enough for me to actually start writing about them properly. But it's interesting but how you a lot of people... what is productive. Yes. I mean, how productive is the Iraq war? We're destroying things. I don't think we can judge it yet. OK, all right. Good stuff. Well, Matthew Elliott, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks very much for agreeing to interview and uh, come on again in a year and, and let's review how the government is doing. Thank you. Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 